I'm Gabriel Spitzer, and this is Transmission. Today's episode, Confronting Mortality. This is not something a lot of us are used to thinking much about. Dreading, sure. Avoiding, you bet. But thinking hard about it and what it means during a time like this, not easy. So we turn to a guy who spent a lot of time in that headspace. Rob Miller is former executive director of End of Life Washington and one of the champions of Washington's death with dignity law. People, particularly elderly and vulnerable people, are having a very heightened sense of their own mortality. I mean, we probably all should all the time and you know live in the moment and all those things. But the fact is, on a day-to-day basis, most people don't have to deal with it. People are dealing with it right now. Rob got into end-of-life issues in the early 1990s. He had just watched his partner's excruciating final months with AIDS. And he'd been given an HIV diagnosis himself, a death sentence at the time. His diagnosis turned out to be just in time to take advantage of breakthroughs in treatment, which is why he's still here today. He says he can't help but think lately about the similarities and differences between these two epidemics, HIV-AIDS and COVID-19. You know, the similarities are so stark. Governments were unprepared, especially the U.S. federal government. Both viruses are super stealthy in that there are infected people walking around without a clue that they're carrying and transmitting the virus to others. There's a lot that's different, too. People ignored AIDS for years, while the coronavirus has the entire world's attention. But there's another parallel that's been gnawing at him. The thing I think that really bothers me, especially given the stigma of HIV AIDS in the 80s and 90s, are the blame and shame. You know, it was called the gay plague. Um, And now we're hearing the president of the United States call it the Chinese virus. And Americans with Chinese ancestry are being attacked, cursed and spit on. A virus can't be Chinese or American. A virus is a really dumb little particle. It has one job, which is to replicate. And it's just ridiculous. It's a virus. Rob Miller has thought a lot about what it means to have a good death, a perspective that feels really meaningful right now. There's no time like the present to sort of say and do the things that you haven't said and done, Um, especially with regard to your relationships with other people. If you need to say you're sorry to somebody, now would be a great time. You know, if you need to tell somebody that you love her or him, this might be a good time. Why not take an opportunity to forgive and be forgiven, say what needs to be said, you know, because you may never get an opportunity to talk to them again. It's also crucial to make plans for end of life. We'll have more on that later in the episode. But to do that, and just to live in the world as it is right now, means owning up to the inevitable. I hate to say this because it sounds so horrible, but, you know, having been told that I was going to die changed my life. I mean, um, I don't know. It sounds kind of ridiculous when I say it out loud, but it did change the way that I looked at everything. It did change my feelings toward the people I love, toward the appreciation of things that I see, of You know, seeing like right now spring flowers, it's like, thank God I lived, uh, survived another winter. You know, I mean, I I see things differently than than people do. But how wonderful would it be if everybody could have that 
revelation without being told that they were terminally ill. You know, I think that acknowledging death just enhances our lives. It just makes us more aware of how precious it is and how fragile it is. And I think a lot of people are being made acutely aware of how fragile it is right now. Rob Miller is the former executive director of End of Life Washington. He spoke to us from his home, where he's hunkered down. As a person over 60 with a compromised immune system, he says he's taking plenty of precautions. Of all the bitter pills that come with social distancing, one of the bitterest is the way that it robs us of our ability to come together and grieve. Kimra Buchanan isn't a stranger to loss. In 2016, her mom died. And that was hard for me. Uh, You know, I was pretty close to my mom. But there was a whole process, you know, going to the funeral home, picking out her urn, family gathering together to support each other. And we can't do any of that right now. It's, it's just been s- strange. The reason that's so strange now is that in mid-March, Kimra lost her husband. Joe Buchanan died after months of routine dialysis treatments. Kimra and their son Justin had known the day would come, but they didn't know it would be at a time like this, when basic human contact is nearly impossible. Kimra and Justin spoke with us from the home they share. Joe and I were had been married for close to 34 years, and he was just an old-school, salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. He was definitely one of those... Uh rub some dirt on it and just get back out there and do, do your job kind of guys. Our life has just been very stable until a year ago. He was diagnosed with kidney failure due to diabetes and we found out that he was not just sick with that but was in heart failure. He had gone to dialysis on Thursday, and he came home, and he was running a temperature, and he had the chills, and I called his doctors, and they said, you know, keep an eye on him, and if you give him Tylenol, if you can't get the fever down, then, you know, bring him in in the morning. He got up the next morning on Friday, and he said he felt better, Um, so I kind of let it go. He seemed a little low energy, but that wouldn't be untypical for him. And so he went to bed a little early that night. And yeah, that was that. Passed in his sleep. It was kind of a relief. I had images of them wheeling him away and putting him in isolation and us not being able to be there with him and him hating it so much. 
he would have never made it through that. I'm pretty sure that I have the virus or had, I'm getting over it. I had a very high temp, coughing, tightness in my chest, actually probably the first two days. The first two days. Um, I slept. Yeah, she was, you were out. Like I was, I was ready to go through this process of mourning my dad and getting ready to celebrate his life. And then suddenly like my brain has to shift and I'm like concerned about my mom. So we kind of just sat and waited it out now. That's what we've been doing now is just self-isolating. You know, maybe I was carrying it and I'm an asymptomatic person, you know, and I gave my dad a hug one day and that was it. You know, I just, we need to find out answers of like who has this and who doesn't. So like, we can make those decisions of like those smart decisions of when to self-isolate like like do i am i caring for my mom who just has you know a really bad cough or does she have coronavirus i i can tell you that i have not even begun to grieve grandma and grandpa they want to come over so bad and just you know give us a hug or help out or like they brought us dinner and I was arguing with them on the phone for like 20 minutes telling them not to come just stay at home but they just had to do something so they uh, brought dinner but they just set it on like our driveway and then I had to go <laughs> out and get it it's it's just surreal it's weird. It's like I live with my mom and like the time where we should be mourning and going through old photos and, and hugging this out, we can't. We've had dinner together, but like you have dinner on the other side of the room. Yeah. This is the closest we've sat together for this interview. You can't social distance and mourn at the same time. Kimra and Justin Buchanan live in a federal way. Preparing for the unthinkable is something that Seattle writer Chanel Reynolds has gotten very intimate with. She's been helping people do it for years. KNKX's Jennifer Wing spoke to Chanel about what we can do to gain a little bit of control in a world where things are definitely not going as planned. Chanel Reynolds knows what it's like to be unprepared because of her own experience with an unexpected tragedy. In July of 2009, her husband, Jose Hernando, and the father of their five-year-old son went for a bike ride on Lake Washington Boulevard in Seattle. I was over at a friend's house for a barbecue and picked up my phone out of my purse and saw that I had 
dozens of missed calls and messages from numbers I didn't recognize. Eventually, Chanel realized the calls were coming from the hospital. Jose was hit by a van, and doctors were trying to save his life. She tried to use Jose's phone to call his friends and family members to tell them this devastating news, but she couldn't get to those numbers because Jose's phone was locked with the passcode that Chanel did not know. So I sat there banging numbers into the phone for hours and hours and never actually got in. She'd soon learn that this was just one of many walls that would take her years to break through, if ever. Jose was unresponsive and on a ventilator. Doctors told Chanel that he was never going to get better. So after a week in the hospital, I did what I knew he would want, and I removed medical support. Hospital staff asked Chanel if her affairs were in order, and her answer was, well, yeah, sort of. They had wills, but they weren't signed. They had life insurance, but it hadn't been updated in a long time. There were just so many additional extra stupid, silly roadblocks to getting information or finding information or remembering information that the time in the hospital when I really wanted to be able to be in the room and I really wanted to be able to pay attention to what the doctors were saying and go home and read a story to my kid to put him to bed each night. It was so interrupted and there was just so much extra or optional suffering on top of the suffering I wasn't going to be able to crawl away from that I realized that we really suck at death in this country. Chanel learned the hard way that having your affairs in order allows you to be more present at a loved one's bedside, at least in normal times, and that you never get that time back. It's hard to go back in time and do things that you wish you had done before. A few years after Jose's death, Chanel started blogging about what she learned so that others don't have to go through what she went through. The blog's name is pretty blunt, How to Get Your Shit Together. Chanel also recently published a book. It's called What Matters Most, the Get Your Shit Together Guide to Wills, Money, Insurance, and Life's What Ifs. So now, thanks to COVID-19, we're all realizing how fragile our situations are financially and health-wise. What do we need to do? Chanel says that we all need a short-term emergency plan. What kind of medications do you or your family members need to take? Is there an extra key somewhere so someone can come and let your dog out so they don't eat your couch? (laughs) Is there some basic stuff so when life goes sideways, everything else also doesn't come to a grinding halt? Everyone should also have a living will, also known as an advanced care directive. This lays out what kind of medical care you do want and the kind that you don't want. Do you want to be put on a ventilator? Some people don't. This is the document you need to have to make sure that your wishes are followed. Another must-have document is the one that names your power of attorney. And that's something that's specifically relevant for what we're all looking at today, which is what happens if I get sick or I'm in an accident? And it's not an end-of-life situation but I am not able to handle paying my bills or I'm not able to make medical decisions because I am on a ventilator and I can't speak. You can have multiple powers of attorney, medical, financial, digital. And this brings us to the final document, a will. All adults, whether you're a land baron or you have a tiny apartment and, you know, a, a, vinyl collection that you hold most dear. Everybody should have a will. 
don't forget to sign it. Yes, this is all a bit overwhelming, but Chanel reminds us that you only need to take a small bite at these things every day. If we're at home more, we could use our commute time <laughs> or our bridge club time for spending five minutes a day just starting to get started. So if and when something happens, there's just less extra you have to deal with because it's really hard to practice like calm, critical thinking when your body is kind of telling you to run around the house in your underwear vacuuming because you don't know what to do and you're really freaked out. It's scary and we're all feeling scared. And Chanel says that planning for our demise can actually be fun. If you want to list out a soundtrack of the music you want playing and the type of essential oil and who you want in the room or not in the room and the fact that everyone has to wear like Elvis jumpsuits, like that's fine. And I highly recommend you do because the less people who are caring for you have to guess what you want, the more you get what you want, which is amazing. And the easier it is for everyone to be able to just be there with you. The whole point of being prepared for the unthinkable is getting rid of stress and gaining a little bit more control. This is probably something that we could all use now that we are living in a situation for which there is no playbook. That story from KNKX's Jennifer Wing. We've heard how the pandemic is complicating the ways we say goodbye, the ways we mourn. And now we're going to hear how that plays out in a particular community. Native American traditions around death stretch back millennia, but the coronavirus is making some of those ceremonies impossible to carry out. Anna King is a correspondent with the Northwest News Network based in Richland, Washington, and she's covered Native American traditions and food gathering for nearly 15 years. So what are some of the ways that this has hit Native American communities especially hard? Well, as we know, in Native communities, there's a lot of underlying health concerns. There are also a lot of reservations are very rural with limited abilities to get to medical care. And it really affects the elders, some of their most revered members. I'd like to introduce you to Armin Minthorn, who's the spiritual leader for the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Reservation. That's near Pendleton, Oregon. They're the ones that correct us, discipline us, encourage us, and teach us our traditions and our customs. Anna, what, what are some of those traditions around death and dying, and how, how are they changing now? The funerals are, are really amazing. They're about two to three days long. And during that ceremony, they do what they call three sevens, which is when they sing three sets of seven songs. It can take hours. There's drumming and bell ringing. And it's so rhythmic and it's, and it's so powerful, the sound of it reverberates in your chest as it goes. And it's just remarkable how you feel when you're inside the longhouse during one of these ceremonies. There's also the handshaking ceremony where they shake everybody's hand to let them know that they're one people, that they're one family. And then they also have a ceremony where they bring out the pictures and clothing of the person who's passed. 
and they show them around to all the people gathered there, and, and they call that the last cry ceremony. And it's then that the people open their hearts and let the hot water out of their eyes. Let the cry out. Let the hurt out. Let the frustration out. So that a person can move on and move forward. So you mentioned these are happening in, in longhouses and there's singing and handshaking. So people are touching each other and, and, and sharing items and objects. I mean, h- how much of that can happen right now? Right now, the longhouse is closed. And so that's part of the problem is that they cannot do the handshaking ceremony, obviously, because of coronavirus. They can't do uh, the hot cry ceremony because you know, they can't touch and hold photographs and pass clothes around. So this is just severely curtailing things that are so important to the tribes. Yeah, did, did Amon give you a sense of how that feels to him and to his people to have to forgo those ceremonies? I can hear it in his voice. I've known Armand for, um, you know, more than... Uh, a dozen years and to hear his voice quaver when he's talking to me he's a very strong man and he's a very proud man I could tell how much it's hurting him and and the people that he serves yeah I wonder are, are there ways that the Umatilla people and, and native people more broadly think about death that that are different from non-native culture and and is there something there that we can learn from minthorn says that we're all warriors against this virus and that the generations that come after this time will remember how we got through this time of the virus and those who are dead are with the creator but those left behind like you and i we still have work to do and through song and ceremony We ask our Creator to give us the courage and the direction we need in our life to continue with that work. And that person that goes back to the Indian land, that person's work is done. That was Armand Minthorn. He's the spiritual leader for the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Reservation. And uh, we've been talking with Anna King of the Northwest News Network. Anna, thanks so much. Thank you. Transmission is produced by the staff of KNKX, including Posey Gruner, Kevin Kniestad, and Jennifer Wing. We had help this week from Kari Plogue, Jeffrey Reddick, and Anna King. Our executive producer is Florangela Davila. We appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Please keep them coming. You can send feedback to outreach at knkx.org. I'm Gabriel Spitzer. Catch you next time on Transmission. Transmission.